To the fathers of men of the three faithful houses, rich reward also was given. Ianwe came among them and taught them, and they were given wisdom and power and life more enduring than any others of mortal race have possessed. A land was made for the Adine to dwell in, neither part of Middle-earth nor of Valinor, for it was sundered by either by a wide sea, yet it was nearer to Valinor. It was raised out of the depths of the great water, and it was established by Aule and enriched by Yavanna, and the Eldar brought thither flowers and fountains out of Tol Erisea. That land the Valar called Andor, the land of gift. And the star of Erendil shone bright in the west as token that all was made ready, and as a guide over the sea. And men marveled to see that silver flame in the paths of the sun. Hey, 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 Tolkieners! I'm Danny J, and I'm Joel N, and this is Trevor D, and we are Keep, Keep on Tolkien. And today we're getting into Men Part Two: The Race of Men. That's right, guys. Today for Episode Eighty Three, just Part Two of our episodes on the Race, race of, men. of Men. And where where would we be without men? Where would we be without men? Men. And uh, where would we be? We wouldn't be at the end of the War of Wrath is where we wouldn't be. Right, yeah, because that's, that's where we left off in the last episode when we were talking about men. Right. We went all the way to the end of the first age is what we covered in the first episode. And we're going to cover the next two ages in this episode, guys. Wrap yourselves in and get ready. Yeah, yeah. Get ready for more men. Get ready for as many men as you can handle. It's raining men. Hallelujah. It's raining men. Great song. All right. So the War of Wrath has just concluded, guys. End of the First Age. Yeah. The continent of Beleriand is completely fucked up, destroyed as a result. It's gone. It's gone. And we got a little quote uh, from, what is this from? The Fall of Numenor, the foundation of the Grey Havens in Lindon. This is going to be read by Joel. In the great battle and the tumults of the fall of Thangaradrim, there were mighty convulsions in the earth, and Beleriand was broken and laid waste, and northward and westward many lands sank beneath the waters of the great sea. In the east, in Osirian, the walls of Eridluin were broken, and a great gap was made in them towards the south, and a gulf of the sea flowed in, and into that gulf the river Loon fell by a new course, and it was called, therefore, the Gulf of Loon. That country had of old been named Lindon by the Noldor, and this name it bore thereafter. Yes, of course. So, the Eldar, they leave Middle-earth in great numbers, basically. A lot of them hightail it, and they go to... uh, They are not actually allowed to go straight up to Valinor, but they're allowed to set uh, to... uh, What do you call it? Settle in uh, Tol Erisea. Yeah, just off the shores. Yeah. They build a new city called the Haven of Avalone, and that's nearest to the Blessed Realm within sight of Amon, but they never get to go there. They don't get to go there, but they're close. They get some of that bliss. But where they do get to go is to Numenor, mm-hmm. and that's why we're mentioning it right now, because it's uh, uh, Avalone and uh, Numenor, big connection there. Yeah, they're kind of neighbors. Yeah. So we have an excerpt here from the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, letter 131, to Milton Waldman in 1951, read by Trevor. 
The next cycle deals, or would deal, with the second age. But it is on Earth a dark age, and not very much of its history is or need be told. In the great battles against the first enemy, the lands were broken and ruined, and the wests of Middle-earth became desolate. We learn that the exiled elves were, if not commanded, at least sternly counseled to return to the west and there be at peace. They were not to dwell permanently in Valinor again, but in the lonely isle of Erisea, within sight of the Blessed Realm. Yeah, they're kind of being cucked by the Blessed Realm there a little bit. But I mean, they still... Like like we said, they get some of that bliss though. They yeah. get some. Oh of, sure, yeah. Erisaya is like it's great. You know, it's like East St. Louis and St. Louis. You know, <laughs> it's like the same thing, right? Well, it's you like know? and it's nice to have like an island. Like you can defend an island pretty well if you got a good navy. And yeah, yeah. I'm sure they did. Oh yeah. So let's uh, let's jump into the second age proper here with men. So yeah, second age. So it's time to go to Numenor. Let's get into the immigration to Numenor. So at the beginning of the Second Age, the Valar raised out of the sea an island that would later become the island of Numenor. And this was a gift to the race of men, at least specifically the men that helped in the War of Wrath to defeat Morgoth at the end of the First Age. And the greater part of those, now called Edain, who survived that war with Morgoth, they journeyed to the island and they sailed in ships provided by and steered by the elves. We've got a lovely excerpt here from the Silmarillion, the Akalabeth, read by Danny. Then the Adanes set sail upon the deep waters, following the star, and the Valar laid peace upon the sea for many days. They sent sunlight and a sailing wind, so that the waters glittered before the eyes of the Adane like rippling glass, and the foam flew like snow before the stems of the ships. Settling their course toward the star, the Adane came at last over the leagues of the sea, and saw afar the land that was prepared for them, Andor, the land of gift, shimmering in a golden haze. Then they went up out of the sea and found a country fair and fruitful, and they were glad. And they called that land Elena, which is starwards, but also Anduni, which is westerness, or Numenore in the High Elderan tongue. This was the beginning of that people that in the gray elven speech are called the Dunedain, the Numenorians, kings among men. I love the Numenorians, guys. They're so cool. They, are, you, are you a budding Dunedain head? I, well, I don't know about budding. I mean, I feel like I've liked the Dunedain for a good long time, too. But, but do you, like, sit and, like, read through the Annals of the Kings for fun? <laughs> oh, sh- surely. Absolutely. No. No, I've never done that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, all the time. That's like masturbation to me. Guys. Well, and reading like, the, <laughs> the reading annals the annals of the kings. Of the kings yeah, like, someone son of someone. As many problems yeah. as we've had with like the rings of power, I really liked their depiction of Numenorians. Like the yeah. the the architecture, the island itself. I mean, the people were kind of assholes, but you know, just the general vibe was pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I mean, I remember gasping out loud the first time we went to uh, uh, I think it was Romana, right? They show in the movie. Mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, we, yeah, a lot of the, the show. Yeah, a lot of the art design in the show, a lot of the art direction, I think, was really great. Yeah. Let's get back into that migration to the Great Island of Numenor. Yeah, that migration. That migration there. Um, it took 50 years, and it brought 5,000 to 10,000 men, women, and children. That's a pretty big exodus of men. Yeah. Or I suppose at this point, they would be called Edain. Edain, yeah. They're kind of like high men. Mm-hmm. So these uh, Numenorians, as they're now called, they were also granted a lifespan three times that of average men. So while most Numenorians lived around 350 years now, 
There was also royal kindred who lived even longer, which was around up to like 400 years or more for some. Yeah, Elros lived for for friggin' ever. Elros lived yeah. for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the longer lifespan resulted in an older age of adulthood, which was 25 years. I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, 25. And we were just discussing it earlier for Hobbits, the, it was 30... 33. 33. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's, you want to hit up a Trev check? Yeah, I think it's time. Because I've got some questions about this, uh, this gift the Numenorians are given. Well, we've got some answers, my friend. Yeah. Okay. So my first question, right? Uh, well, sort of a statement too. It, it kind of sounds like Ilavatar doomed Numenor from the start by giving them longer lifespans because you know they uh, eventually are they fall to wanting immortality, right? Right. After they're corrupted. So mm-hmm. I mean, why not just replace the the gift of men with the with the gift of Numenor? Like, don't let them die. Well, I don't know. Apparently, this is a better like, the gift of death is better than this cool island. Even I guess I, I don't know. Ilavatar seems to know the answers. Only the father knows. That's also at that point, wouldn't they be more or less elves? That's yeah. What would distinguish them from the firstborn then? The fact that they're still secondborn. That's nah. about that's about all I got. Nah, <laughs> nah. The okay. fact that they're always a giant number two. Yeah. Okay, well, what, what about, uh, were only the people that went to the island given the gift? Like, and, and did they have a deadline in order to get it? Yeah, so only the people that settled on the island and their descendants uh, were given this gift. And they did have a deadline to get there. There was only 50 years a migration period. And uh, if you didn't get over there, the elves stopped doing that after 50 years. Yeah, the elven transport was cut off at cut 50 off. years. You're cut off. So if you were there at like... You know, the 365th day and the boat is, the last boat is heading out and you miss it by like five minutes. You're fucked. You're fucked. No more, no more extended lifespan for you. Like maybe you swam after that and got there, but you're yeah. too late. Swam, swam across the swam sea across to get your gift. The, and then you, you didn't get the gift because you're too late. You were late because you were getting high for the boat ride and That's you right. just missed it. You just know? missed it. Damn. So, okay. What about, um, obviously people were old at some point like were they grandfathered in with their current lifespan (laughs) (laughs) that's a great question and only trevor would think of that question for real though uh it i don't know you're saying like if somebody was already like 80 years old would they now get to live to be like 380 years old yeah if they did so would it would it just be long old age i yeah i was not able to find that anywhere that's a great question great question yeah yeah i wonder yeah who they'd take up their complaints to about that yeah <laughs> you gave me a longer life but it sucks <laughs> i'm so old i can't move i'm so old <laughs> okay all right last question that i have um so how how would the numenorians have dealt with population growth i mean if well, they'd have to probably call their um not call calls the wrong word oh <laughs> shit okay Ooh. <laughs> they have to slow their population growth uh, for fear of overpopulation right i mean they live on an island right uh they live on an island and they live a long time so they kind of started to live like the elves and have small families yeah, like yeah. they only ha- it's Numenorians typically have like one or two kids it seems to frequently be an effect of longer lifespans fewer kids yeah just hmm. fewer kids yeah i mean hey that makes sense economically for sure oh yeah for sure yeah, these kids are gonna be around forever yeah, yeah. <laughs> never get away from them save up that college fund never never well let's get in, uh into the numenorians a little bit more numenor was ruled by the line of elros son of Arendil, and there were 32 kings in total from elros to Farazan. yeah the numenorian civilization was essentially the height of the power of the race of men. Uh, the kingdom lasted for almost 3,000 years from uh, Second Age 32 to Second Age 3,319. It's a long fucking time. And they became essentially a great nation, like one of the greatest nations 
ever on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was crazy. It seems kind of funny to me that uh, an island nation like off the side who can't even go east it got so big. It can't go west. West. Yes, can't go west. Yes. So they became so big from that one spot taking over the east. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they went everywhere. They went friggin' everywhere. And their knowledge and craft of craft and lore was enriched by their close relationship with the elves of uh, of Tolerasea. Yeah, the elves often visited the island of Numenor in the in the early days when they were still friendly with the elves. Mm-hmm. And the elves brought many cool ass gifts to the Numenorians, like the white tree, for example. Yeah, including the white tree given to Eldarion as a wedding gift. Um, and that was always a symbol of the friendship uh, of the elves and the faithfulness to the Valar and the you know the old ways the the good ways as it were yeah i love when that story when he's first given the they're first given the tree at their <laughs> wedding and he's like oh this will make a good of, boat yeah what kind of tree is this it looks like it would make good lumber for a boat and the elves are like they're horrified confused and <laughs> they're, horrified they're like yeah. we do not chop down these trees these yeah. are sacred trees yeah. and he was like oh oh why sorry. would you do such a thing yeah it's such a cool gift though to be given a tree like here's something that's going to potentially last through multiple generations yeah. of your family. Well, Adarian's name literally means of the trees in uh in uh, Quenya. So like he he loved trees. He was all about trees. He was the forest master. He was the one that actually started the practice of replanting trees yeah. after they'd cut them down to make boats. Yeah. Oh, what he, a- he was the he was in the he was in the process of reforesting the island basically. Yeah, he was the Lorax of Numenor, dude. What a smart person. Yeah. He wanted to be able to keep making boats. Yeah. In order to keep making boats, you essentially have to farm trees. You got to farm trees, yep. Renewable resources, guys. Yeah. Let's get into their uh, sailing east, their colonization of Middle Earth. Yeah, because they were all basically the ultimate colonizers. Oh, yeah, totally. And uh, during the time of the Great Sea Kings, the Numenorians greatly expanded their sphere of influence. I'm talking everywhere, guys. Like, uh, if you really want to know about this more, check out uh, Karen Fonstadt's, um Voyages of the Numenorians map in the, um, the uh, Atlas? Atlas of Middle Earth. Yeah, yeah, that's a really cool map. Yeah, they go friggin' places I didn't even know were real. Yeah, they they made a st- they made settlements everywhere, everywhere, but they were not allowed to sail west. Yep, as long as you you could sail west, as long as you could see the island, as long as you could still see Numenor, that was as far west as you could go. They didn't want them coming anywhere near Valinor. Yeah. Essentially, it's actually kind of nice that they have that sort of like. Um, limit that hard cut off that hard but, cut off like yeah. don't go they any further already, as far as like the world map goes though they were already so far west anyway the only thing further west from them was just valinor everything else was to the east and yeah so and like if you want to be where it's at where so it's they hopping. were they were given free reign o- over pretty much the whole world yeah except for one <laughs> place except for yeah. one place thank you yeah. Ulivatar. yeah really giving it to the men mm-hmm yeah, Numenorians, they began to uh, have colonies freaking everywhere, everywhere. And they first came as benevolent lords. Uh, the men of Middle-earth uh, Middle were astonished by their power and majesty. Yeah, because these were they were significantly larger sized people too. Like they were big. Yes, dudes. they're average seven foot. Yeah, and uh, the Numenorians originally they enriched the lives of the men of Middle Earth, teaching them much craft and lore because they like learned the elves, a lot themselves. Like the elves did to them, exactly yeah. passing on the knowledge. And mm-hmm. this policy would change later, unfortunately, and eventually the Numenorians would become absolute tyrants, and the men of Middle Earth would uh, essentially learn to fear them. Oh yeah, totally as oppressors. Yeah. Let's talk about the Kingsmen and the Faithful. I know we've talked about that a few times, so we're going to try to keep it a little brief here. 
Yeah, so as the kingdom of Numenor grew in power, the people of Numenor began to shun the Eldar because uh, the people of Numenor started to resent the gift of men, that is death. They, they got these longer lifespans, they got all their cool stuff now, they don't want to die. So some of these Numenorians remained in friendship with the Eldar and maintained their reverence for the Valar. And they, these people were kind of the smaller, they were the fewer number, they were called the Faithful. Yeah, the Elendili, the admirers of the stars slash the faithful. Uh, most people uh, became hateful as fuck, and they supported the shunning of the Eldar and the abandonment of the old ways. And those assholes were called the Kingsmen. Yeah, so during the days of the division in Numenor, some of the faithful decided to start leaving the island and start returning to Numenor. Why, why hang out on an island full of assholes? Full of hateful assholes. So these faithful that left and went back to Middle-earth, they established the port of, uh, oh, I'm going to pronounce it wrong. It's a hard one. Pelargir? Pelargir, yeah, I think so. Near the mouth of Anduin. That one always trips me up. Yeah. I keep wanting to say Pelagir. Yeah. And even it's it's just spelled kind of awkward for pronouncing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's uh, the ancient uh, yeah, uh, port on the, uh, at the mouth of the Anduin. Yeah, established by the faithful, but... Not too far from there, south down the down the coastline, is where the Kingsmen established the colony of Umbar. Yes. So let's get into uh, the Akalabeth, the destruction of Numenor. Akalabeth? That's a really cool... Why? Tolkien just has so many cool freaking words, man. Yeah, it means downfall in Adunaic, right? Yeah. During the reign of Arpharazon, the last king of Numenor, Sauron had been taken to the island of Numenor as a prisoner. Yeah, and Sauron eventually becomes the advisor to the king and encourages the king to openly rebel against the Valar. And this would lead to the destruction of the entire island. And uh, before the fall, though, the leaders of the faithful were kind of given a heads up and allowed to escape on nine ships. Yeah, they had they had some time before they were na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Nice to have a warning before a disaster. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, so among the faithful was Elendil and sons. So Elendil, son of a Mandil, and his two sons, Isildur and Anarion, they escaped the destruction with the rest of the faithful, and they sailed over to Middle-earth. And they also brought with them a bunch of really cool historical artifacts from Numenor, like the uh, Seeing Stones, for example, a whole bunch of really cool stuff. Oh, yeah, cool shit. Narsil as well. Bring a bear here. Here. They were actually separated uh, uh, during the crossing, and they landed in Middle-earth in two different places and established two different kingdoms. So they established the North Kingdom, which became known as the Kingdom of Arnor. That was established by Elendil. In the South Kingdom of Gondor, the Land of Stone, was established by Isildur and Anarion. Brothers! Yeah, Elendil's son. So it's kind of like the Father's Kingdom and the two below that, the Southern Kingdom, where the sons kind of had their... Yeah, had their way, had their domain. Yeah. So, considering how long Numenor was around, like you know, some three thousand years. Yeah. And then this whole disaster happens. Like, these are pretty big world events. This kind of seems like it should mark the end of the Second Age. Yeah, that is um, a common misconception, though. I, I I fell prey to that uh, for many years. Same. I thought it was the end of the Second Age, mm-hmm. but no, the Second Age is the fall the uh, fall of Sauron. So there is a gap between the destruction of Numenor and the end of the Second Age. Mm. I'm glad you asked that question because a lot of people get that mixed up. Yeah, I thought that for the longest time because I mean it makes sense, right? Because the first yeah, because the first age ended with the cataclysm, 
Right. And then you've got the second cataclysm of Numenor plus this is also when the earth becomes round. It's made round, yeah. Th- that's huge. Th- that's a very significant change that in the world. Like a very <laughs> significant change. But not the end to Not enough yeah. for a new age. So technically half of the second age is flat earth and then half of it is round. It's like two thirds uh and a third, I think. But okay, yeah. Okay, so two thirds yeah. of it is flat earth. Yeah. But how that's must be so weird for people sailing, right? Because like your horizon suddenly goes from like flat and you can see things as far as a telescope could look to yeah that ship just disappeared over the horizon <laughs> like yeah, yeah exactly that's like when uh when the burning of the ships at lascar in the silmarillion you can see them from the other continent yeah from the other side of the sea because you're flat. like why how could that's possible yeah, and you're it's like, so far oh, away. the world is flat that's why the world's flat yeah so let's get into that uh the last alliance what uh ends up ending the second age yeah which actually go. ends the second age so at the end of the Second Age, this is when the free people of Middle-earth banded together to overthrow Sauron and Mordor, and this was known as the Last Alliance. Yeah, after a long campaign that we're not going to get into because we've covered it many, many times, including in an entire episode about the Last Alliance. That's right. Elendil, and the, high, uh, the, Endil, Elendil the, the High King, is slain along with his son, Anarion. Yeah. And, and so, his best buddy, Gilgalad. That's right. Yeah, Gilgalad is where he falls. Yeah. So uh, Elendil's remaining son, Isildur, essentially becomes the High King. And after Isildur's death, the kingdoms become sundered. And they would remain that way until the end of the Third Age, after the War of the Ring. Yeah, and just a note, uh, Isildur dies uh, by being betrayed by the Ring. We all remember the disaster of the Gladden Fields, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Lion of Isildur, they ruled the north. They continued. His son, Velandil, went on to, uh, to rule an, um, Arnor. In the line of Anarion, they ruled in the south. So let's get into some of, move away from the Numenorians and the, you know, men of Westerness and exile. Let's go into some of just the regular ass middlemen yeah. of Middle Earth. Your everyday kind of Joes. Folks you know? who didn't make the ferry over to Numenor in time. Yeah, they decided to stick it out over here in the, in the Middle Earth, you know. While a good number of the Adain did sail to Numenor in the beginning of the Second Age, some did say, decide to stay behind in Middle Earth. And these men became known as the middlemen, as opposed to the Numenorians, which were more high men. Never really called that, but like that's the implication, right? That they're the high men. Right. Did these guys know that they were giving up prolonged life to stay in Middle Earth? I don't know if they were told. I'm not sure. (laughs) I feel like that'd be a hard thing to turn down if you knew. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Like, was there a flyer going around or something? Yeah. Did did they have, like, hard regrets years later when the Numenorians came over and went, hey, guys? If they (laughs) understood that history, I bet, yeah. (laughs) It's probably lost to them, that history, but, like, yeah, if they did remember that, they'd be salty. It'd be funny. One of their friends comes back after, like, 50 years, finally sails back over the sea, and all of a sudden your friend's like, seven foot foot tall. Like, a foot and a half taller. He's, like, big and burly, and he's, like, hasn't aged a day. And here you're like 80 years old and you're like, hey, buddy, what the fuck happened? Remember the good old days? Yeah, your friend used to have a big burly beard, but now that he's Dunedain, he's clean shaven. Oh, that's right, because the Dunedain don't have They can't grow beards. Yeah, Dunedain heads out there. The Dunedain don't grow beards. Does your beard just fall out when they got on the island? (laughs) They're sprinkled sprinkled with a little bit of elf magic dust and their beards fell off. Yeah. So, yeah, these guys are left behind, much like the shitty Kirk Cameron movie based on the book, <laughs> which is like a Protestant uh, fantasy type novel, sci-fi type. I, I read one of those books. The, the first one, Left Behind? Yeah. I, I've yeah. seen the movie. I've never read the book, but the movie was something. It was I, really I something. I, I finished it. I wouldn't say that I enjoyed it, but, you know. Kirk Cameron is really something. Something. Yeah. 
something. He, he is a something. He sure is. I'm glad we have Tolkien then. Yeah. Um, but these these middlemen would go on to establish settlements all over Middle Earth. And let's get into some of the, the, the subgroups of middlemen in, in Middle Earth. Yeah, let's start by talking about the Northmen of Fravanian. Northmen! We've I talked love about, yeah, we talked about them a little bit back during our uh, Rohan uh, season. Yeah, right? as you may know them as the uh, ancestors of the Rohirrim. Yeah, we'll get into that later, though. Yeah, so the Northmen of Rohanian, they're descendants of the ancient house of Hador. And the House of Ahed, or some of you may remember, uh, was they were part of they were the greater group of the two northern groups of Atani mm-hmm. that had left Hildorian in the first stage. We covered this in the last episode. Yes. I'm sure you all remember. Check that out if you haven't. I don't know why you'd be listening in part two <laughs> without having heard part one. But if you are, I suggest going back to do that. This will make a lot more sense to you. Uh, but when the greater group was settled on the Sea of Rune, some of the men stayed there and then migrated further into Rovanian later. The Northmen, as they came to be known, they were originally pretty uh, primitive, even though my sociology teacher would kill me for saying that term. It's ethnocentric. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. But uh, yeah, they were uh, kind of primitive in a way. Why, why would the Northmen be so primitive? I mean, because like, we know the Atani had basic skills when they were part of the greater group um, around the Sea of Rune, and we know that they had boats and, li- and livestock and things, so they, they were capable of a lot of a variety of things sure, they needed to do to survive. Crafting and things, yeah. Yeah, so like, what, what was their setup like in the North? What did they, how did they live? Well, they were living pretty simple lives, Trevor. They, uh, they had um, pretty small, sparsely populated villages uh, all around. They didn't have very much defense against enemies. That was a big problem. Um, they had basic weapons and defense that they you know learned early on in the first age, but nothing that could withstand the forces of Sauron that would soon be a problem. Yeah, their people had lived in relative peace throughout the First Age, but that all changed after the War of Wrath. Uh, The leftover forces of Morgoth made their way eastward into the region, and essentially the Northmen found themselves at war, almost constantly. It almost sounds like they shafted themselves, like by not going to Numenor. Again, again, not getting the gift of Numenor and then staying behind. Well, they couldn't have gone to Numenor because they didn't help in the First Age. Oh, so these, so the middlemen yeah. are of those who did not. Okay, yeah, the, I see. these particular middlemen. Gotcha. Some of the Adine, you know, stayed as well. Mm. But uh, yeah, this all changed when the Northmen became friends with Durin's folk. Yeah, dwarves. Um, this was during the Second Age. Uh, the the dwar- the alliance of dwarves and men was founded. This was something I didn't know all that much about. I didn't either, honestly. For as much as I love the dwarves, I uh, did not know much about this. There's a lot of different alliances I'm noticing that are formed throughout Tolkien. Oh yeah, because you get, that's a that's a very um, uh, Tolkieny thing, like uh, banding together to fight evil, camaraderie, uh, yeah, camaraderie, yeah, solidarity, as it were. Well, that makes sense. Well, okay, so I'm I'm curious then about this this particular alliance of dwarves and men. Mm-hmm. Um, what did both sides get out of it? I mean, please don't tell me the dwarves got shafted. Yeah, dude. <laughs> sure, dude. The, well, the Northmen they gave uh, they gave the dwarves horses, and they taught them uh, about livestock and animal husbandry and things like this, agricultural techniques. But also, trade between the two peoples was very, very important because what the dwarves can't make themselves, they obtain in trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they can't make everything. Like there's certain things they don't get. And Durin's folk, they not only taught the men crafting, but they also traded with them for some of their dwarven stuff. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the men, they, the dwarves essentially provided the men with uh, great metallurgy skills, mm-hmm. 
taught them to defense tactics and other things about the ways of war because at this point in time the dwarves are a pretty war hardened race oh yeah they've been fighting since yeah they've almost always years of the trees i feel like the dwarves were a war hardened race before war yeah they just kind of (laughs) yeah they're kind of made that way they're kind of made that way okay so they they kind of taught each other uh some necessary stuff for survival yeah Yeah, definitely it was uh symbiotic mutually beneficial okay so i assume this now means that the northmen can defend themselves uh from morgoth's men right orcs whatever yeah Yeah. so how how did they fare after that well yeah this alliance it allowed the northmen to finally be able to defend their borders uh with the help of durin's folk Mm -hmm. and safeguard their people from uh orc marauders yeah, and this did bring about some relative peace until the War of the Elves and Sauron. So there was a, a lot of good that came out of this. Yeah. How well, long would you say this peace lasted for? Um, It was around 1,600 years or so. It's a significant amount it's of peace. Significant, significantly yeah. long time. Yeah. The late late yeah. 1600s was when the War of Elves and Sauron started, the latter years of the 1600s. So. The Second Age was a long time. Yeah, can yeah. you imagine uh, being alive and it just being like knowing peace for years and like generations even? Yeah, mm-hmm. generations even must be weird. Yeah, we're Americans; we don't know about that, right? We have a <laughs> we got we got wars going on every every few years. Sometimes they overlap. It's weird. So the alliance of men and dwarves was eventually broken during the War of Elves and Sauron, when Sauron invaded and occupied the region of Rovanion. Right, uh, most of their towns and cities were destroyed. The Northmen came to hide in the caves and encampments on the eaves of the Greenwood. Yeah, the dwarves at this point completely abandoned their outer settlements and shut themselves inside Khazad Doom. They closed the doors and they just endured the long siege because they could afford to do that. Yeah. Um, Gilgalad and friends would uh, liberate Rovanion and push Sauron back to Mordor in 1701 of the Second Age. I I know we've talked about this in the past, um, Mm -hmm. but like, what what gave Gilgalad Gilgalad, the edge to best Sauron. Like, you know, because from what I remember, it wasn't he kind of getting his ass kicked in, the, kicked in the War of Elves and Sauron? Yes. At first, Sauron controlled more land than he had ever controlled ever. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's like Sauron Gondor, who had more. Oh, oh Sauron. 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 Wow. Oh, yeah. Sauron literally owned everything from the Misty Mountains east. Sauron essentially owned Gondor and Damn. parts of the stuff west of the Misty parts Mountains. Parts of Iriador, too. too yeah. yeah. Sauron the Conqueror. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the key to Gilgalad's success was actually his alliance with the Numenorians. Yeah, in the Second Age 1700, this is when Gilgalad and his Numenorian buddies, under the King Tar Minister, they scored a huge victory in the Battle of the Gwathlo. I gotta correct you here. Tar Minister was not king at the time, but he was head of the navy. Oh, excuse me. But it's the person that would go on to be known as Tar Minister. Thank Just you. for you Dunedain heads out there that really want us to keep it straight, I got to keep it straight. <laughs> I know? think I think you are that yeah. lone Dunedain. But I'm, yes, I'm Dunedain. 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 This, is, <laughs> this is what this is what we need you for. I'm Dunedainy J. That's, that's what they call me. Jay. Yeah. No, um, but yeah, got to set it straight. Seems kind of weird to me that Dwarves also had friends in the Numenorians. How how did Gilgalad become allied with them? Uh, well, during the reign of Tar Middle-dur, Gilgalad became really good friends with the king's son, Eldarion the Mariner, because he was always sailing back to Middle-earth. Yeah, Eldarion. Always making friends with people in Middle-earth. So Gilgalad sent a letter back with Eldarion, uh, essentially to give to his father, Tar Middle-dur. And this letter asked for help in the struggle against the growing power of Sauron in Middle-earth. So that kind of essentially asked to team up with him he's like pleaded for his help oh, okay yeah. 
And when the Numenorians became to come to Middle-earth in, uh, in great numbers, they became fast friends and allies with the Northmen. Buds. Buds. Yeah, the Numenorians recognized them as descendants of the greater group, making them essentially distant kinsmen. Yeah, because the Numenorians are partially uh, descended from the House of Hador, mm-hmm. so they're they're relatives, man. Yeah. They're like they're, they're distant cousins, part of that greater group as well. It's yeah. nice that they actually recognize that. That yeah, because yeah. they know their history, dude. They know their lore. They were part of it. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, this is yeah, this is their family history to them. Yeah, I wonder you what know? that family tree looks like. Just all of a sudden branches off in two directions. Yeah. Now, when it came to the Last Alliance, it was not specifically stated that the Northmen were involved. In the last alliance, but it can be assumed at least some of them fought in Anarian's army of Gondor. I mean, it'd be hard to believe that you know some of them. Some of them would probably want to fight. You'd think, yeah, at least a good handful of them should probably want to fight to avenge the utter destruction of their homeland. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were enslaved and stuff, man. Yeah, they would be pretty bitter. I would be. So let's get into some uh, some other men that we might not know a whole lot about. Let's get into Easterlings of the Second Age. Here Ooh. we go. I like Easterlings, I think. Yeah, they're cool. They have a cool history. So most of the Easterlings we hear about in the Second Age are essentially servants of Sauron, because Sauron gained a huge following in the East during the Second Age. So this was essentially to secretly gain strength to combat the growing power of the Numenorians after Sauron's defeat in the War of the Elves and Sauron. Yeah, he is seething from that that defeat still. So he's just plotting, building his armies, recruiting a bunch of people out east. And there were some small number of Easterlings that actually resisted the rule of Sauron and did not go on to worship him or Morgoth. Yeah, and this turned into an all-out, straight-up insurgency revolution type uprising uh in part in parts of the east like an armed rebellion uh and this was fueled by the blue wizards working against sauron and we have a fun excerpt from history of middle earth volume 12 the five wizards from joel but the other two astari were sent for a different purpose morenitar and romastamo darkness slayer and east helper their task was to circumvent sauron to bring help to the few tribes of men that had rebelled from Melkor worship, to stir up rebellion, and after his first fall, to search out his hiding, in which they failed, and to cause dissension and disarray among the Dark East. They must have had very great influence on the history of the Second and Third Age in weakening and disarraying the forces of the East, who would both in the Second and Third Age otherwise have outnumbered the West. Yeah, big ups to the Blue Wizards. Uh, we we previously on this podcast had shit on them for seemingly yeah. doing nothing. We shafted them. Yeah, we shaft, shafted, shafted, shafted. Yeah, Blue Wizards. Blue Wizards shafted by KOT. <laughs> uh, but yeah, um, they yeah they were really doing work over there, and yeah, then we apparently. never we never heard from them again. If it weren't for them, our asses would have been toast. Yeah, and it, it that that uh, that passage was saying that if they hadn't intervened, that Sauron would have easily outnumbered. Oh, easily, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, if, we already each time Sauron is defeated, it's basically by the skin of our teeth anyway anyway yeah, yeah and that's with them fighting on two fronts essentially because you got the armed insurrection going on at home and you're trying to empty your lands to fight for sauron mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been cool you know it, you would have been stretched very thin mm-hmm. sounds like uh men are quite impressive when it comes to this stuff yeah 
All right, let's get into the Druidane of the Second Age. Yeah, so at the beginning of the Second Age, this is when our friends, the Druidane of Beleriand, were still super tight with their homies, the House of Halith. And a small number of them followed their friends over to Numenor. And there they were essentially leeches and worked with stone and wood. Yeah. Yeah, they were into medicine, like leech leechcraft, you know, not like literal blood sucking leeches. Right. Leechcraft? Yeah. That's leechcraft, yeah. That's a fun word. It's like a, you know, the people that like a leech will go to an apothecary and they'll buy, you know, things for leechcraft. It's a cool little term. Hmm. But yeah, and they worked with stone and wood. They were really good with that that shit too. Yeah, the Druidane began to leave the island during the reign of Tar Eldarion, and they may have been able to sense that something was coming, that the downfall was gonna happen. But if they did, man, that was really fucking early. Yeah, and yeah, if they did, because we do know by, that by the time the island fell, there were no Druidan left on the island. Right, yeah, in the time of Aldarian, that's kind of like a good time for that's, Numenor. That's yeah. Kind of a, yeah, that was um, a good time for them to, to check out. Do you guys think the Druidan started to leave when the corruption of Numenor started? Actually, it, yeah, it was way before that. Um, oh. It was during the reign of Tar Aldarian, and that was when the, the, the trade routes really matured into uh, what they would be, where you can travel back between... Uh, middle earth and numenor like easily yeah it finally was safe to make that trip pretty regularly yeah but in essence they noped out as soon as they could anywhere um starting 882 was the from their first year of the reign of aldarian so oh, okay. they were there so from they, they yeah. were there for a good amount of time at least yeah from 32 sa to 882 in the very yeah. least so they're there for at least 800 years yeah you know knowing what we've talked about when it comes to the druidane i bet you they left because they had already categorized all the plants and animals <laughs> yeah. and they yeah. were getting bored yeah because island right yeah yeah, yeah. limited um, in Middle-earth, the Druidane, they suffered further persecution. Big surprise. Everyone's always trying to fucking beat up on the Druidane. Right, leave them alone. They were driven from their homes in the White Mountains during the height of Sauron's power. So, yeah, during the elves, War of Elves and Sauron, they were totally oppressed and just driven from their homes. But they did remain in small settlements in Middle-earth, however. Most notably, the Druidan Forest. Yeah, that's where we come to know them when we interact with them in the Third Age in the Lord of the Rings story. Yeah, which brings us to our third age section. Yay! Yeah, buddy. The one we're all most familiar with. Yeah, this is the most familiar stuff. Well, this is when men really shine, too. Like, this is the age... Well, I should say men really shine during Numenor, but the third age, as we get into the later ages, has become more of the ages of men, right? Right. It's where uh, they're more... It's more dominated by uh, men culturally, I guess you'd say, than, yeah. than the Eldar yeah. previously had been. So let's get into those uh, Numenorean realms in exile. Let's get into Gondor, the land of stone. Glorious Gondor. Glorious Gondor. Yeah, there was a period of time, Glorious Gondor, in the days of the king, when Gondor grew to be huge and powerful kingdom with a large, large sphere of influence. Yeah, but that sphere of influence did not last forever because eventually Gondor would wane. Right. And Gondor began to decline when they were faced with three different catastrophes at the same time. At the same time? Yeah. Not, not really. Like, yeah, back to back. Back to, yeah, oh, okay. Like consecutively. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I should say consecutive. That would suck not, if they were all at the same time. Holy shit. That would suck. But yeah, the th they call them the three great evils, and that is the Kinstrife, the Great Plague, and the mm -hmm. Wainrider slash Balkoth War. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about these events, check out our Gondor episode in our Kingdoms of the Dunedain series. Yeah, our first series that I'm really proud of, I think. Yeah, that was one of our real good, first good trilogies. Yeah. So uh, while we're talking about Gondor, let's talk about the rule of the stewards. Yes. Eventually, the line of Anarion did fail. With the disappearance of the last and childless king, 
King Arenur in uh, Third Age 2050. So that's when the, they're no longer ruled by kings. Well, they yeah. still they still stuck around for a good amount of time though after the Second Age. Oh yeah. That's, oh yeah. Is that so? We would we say that's probably another long lasting period of peace. Not necessarily. No, not no. necessarily. <laughs> no, there's always kind of war going on, and there was a lot mm. of conquering going on at that time too. Yeah. So that's war. That's uh, elective. That's elective war, really. Elective war. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the rule of Gondor uh, was essentially handed over to the House of the Stewards at this point after the la- we lost the last king, and the last ruling steward of Gondor was Denethor II, and uh, he was uh, ended when he committed suicide in 3019. During the Battle of Pelennor Fields. Yeah. I guess you could say technically Faramir is the last ruling steward, but he was only steward, like ruling steward for like a, a day because he was unconscious. I suppose that is true. <laughs> like, yeah. That is true. So yeah. it count then? <laughs> I don't know if it counts. Yeah, that's why I didn't <laughs> that's why I didn't add it. Uh, but we might as well bring it up. But let's get into the Aragorn and the reunifications of the kingdoms. Yeah, so after the passing of the Sort of the last steward, Denethor, in the end of the Third Age, Aragorn and the line of Isildur would eventually return to Gondor during the War of the Ring, and after the downfall, Aragorn is crowned the new High King of the Dúnedain, new uh, High King of both kingdoms. Yeah, yay! We know that uh, Aragorn is sort of like the last of the Dúnedain, right? He's the last chieftain of the Dúnedain. Last there chieftain. are other Dúnedain... He's not the only Duna die. Yeah, they kind of make it seem that way in the movie. Yeah. But uh, in the book, like he's got like the Grey Company. He's got like a crew He's got of a Dunedin. crew of Dunedain that roll with him. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, because like Aragorn obviously would have the, the gift of Numenor to some degree, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah 100%. Right? Mm-hmm. So like, um, and I'm assuming the rest of his line would, are, do, would other people around him or somehow also? Yeah, any of his relatives, cousins, uh, uncles, you know, aunts, they Anyone all have in it. his bloodline, yeah. yeah. But let's talk about the north a little bit. Arnor, the northern kingdom. It was powerful for a time, but eventually began to decline. Yeah, and this was in part due to the plague and the civil war. Yeah, let's talk about that civil war and the sundering of Arnor. Yeah, so after the death of Erendur, the 10th king of Arnor, in 861 of the Third Age, there was a contention among his sons who would be the next ruler. Yeah, he had three sons, and the eldest son was the true king of Arnor by the rules, right? Mm -hmm. And he claimed the whole kingdom of Arnor, but he was now really only in control of an area that was one-third of the kingdom called Arthedain. Yeah, the other two uh, established Cardolan and Rudaur, respectively, and essentially the kingdom becomes like a three-part kingdom. Yeah. We have an excerpt here from The Return of the King, Appendix A, Annals of the Kings and Rulers, read by Trevor. In Arthedain, the line of Isildur was maintained and endured, but the line soon perished in Cardolan and Rudauer. There was often strife between the kingdoms, which hastened the waning of the Dunedain. The chief matter of debate was the possession of the Weather Hills and the land westward towards Bree. Both Rudauer and Cardolan desired to possess the Amansul, which stood on the borders of their realms, for the Tower of Amansul held the chief plantier of the north, and the other two were both in the keeping of Arthedain. Yeah, they're constantly fighting over the the Palantiri. Mm-hmm. Seems, yeah, that seems to be like a regular recurring thing. Everybody wants those darn things. They're yeah. pretty useful. They're valuable. They're one of a. They're seven of a kind. Really, seven of a kind. <laughs> that kind of instant long distance communication wasn't possible. Yeah, Feanorian FaceTime. Remember? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So let's get into a little bit of the destruction of that North Kingdom. Yeah. So seeing that there was disunion among the Dunedain of the North. 
the Witch King of Angmar decided it was a great time to invade the north. Yeah, the three kingdoms uh, set aside their differences for a while and fought together in a long and destructive war, but they were eventually defeated by Angmar. And let's talk about their last king, uh, King of, of Arthedain, Arvidwi. Yeah, so the last king of Arnor was Arvidwi, and he was forced to flee from the destruction of Arnor with two of the Palantiri. Yeah, the king and his men were helped by the snowmen of Forishel, because uh, they were fucking starving in the Blue Mountains, in the in the dwarf mines. Yeah, they were on the run, and basically the snowmen of Forishel saved their asses. Yeah, they sure did. Um, and he gave to them the Ring of Bear here as a ransom, but he later drowned in the sea when his ship sank, trying to sail away to Lindon. And unfortunately, the two Palantiri went down with the ship with him, and they are lost. Somewhere at the bottom of the bay. Yep. I wonder, is could you communicate with the lost Palantiri? You just wouldn't be able to see anything? I'm sure you could, yeah, because it would be underwater. Be like yeah. fish and bubbles. There'd be two of stuff. them underwater, yeah. That'd Maybe be kind of neat. Yeah. You just shine a light through your Palantiri and have like a, a mm. display of the ocean or undersea life on your wall. Fucking Loch Ness Monster. Yeah, that'd be yeah. super cool. All right, well, let's get into um, after the fall of Norm, uh, of Arnor. The, uh, the Dunedain are still around, so what do they do? They kind of reorganize into uh, a chieftainism is that what you say a, chi- a chieftainry yeah so- something like that yeah they, <laughs> d- they, d- they went away with the kings because they figured they didn't really have a kingdom anymore right so since they're all just kind of rangers at this point yeah they're kind of just roaming around uh they chose a chieftain yeah the uh, north kingdom was utterly destroyed but uh some of the dunedain survived along with the line of isildur which remained unbroken yeah Aranarth, son of arvidui decided not to take the title of king but instead chieftain of the Dunedain of the North. And there were ultimately 16 chieftains from Aranarth to Aragorn II, our buddy. Yeah, and we know he would eventually renew the North Kingdom and become High King of both Gondor and Arnor. Was Getting there, rid of chieftains altogether, yeah. yeah. Was there a particular reason that they decided on that different terminology? I think they just I think it was just, it, yeah, they didn't, I mean... They didn't really have a kingdom at There was point. no organization, there was no uh, state infrastructure, it was all gone. Okay, so maybe they're just, just kind a, of a roaming people, a result of the size, right? Mm-hmm. And, and many of them were killed. Not by, I mean, the plague killed a shitload of them. The civil war killed a shitload of them, and then the war with Angmar. It was just too much. Yeah, and I mean the uh, ranger. They didn't really have any permanent dwelling anywhere. No, they didn't have like a home they base. They had campments and stuff like that. They would frequent Bree, but yeah, in uh, Sarnford and places like that. You know, so a people broken, sundered. Yeah, and yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Yeah. But they still uh, remain true to their, their way of life, and they do defend the what was the North Kingdom from evil mm-hmm. for many years. For many years. Let's talk, into some, let's talk about some other Numenorians that also happen to be assholes, the black Numenorians. While the faithful Numenorians living in Middle-earth gravitated towards the kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor, the king's men living in Middle-earth, they settled mostly in the haven of Umbar. And they were constantly at war with Gondor throughout Gondor's entire history. Well, I remember we talked about Gondor being pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Did did Gondor actually take Umbar? Yes, Gondor did conquer and reconquer Umbar on several occasions. The it changed. Oh, the, yeah. the reconquer. Okay, so yeah, they went this back, is and back and forth. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. This, the conflicts between Gondor and Umbar spanned many centuries, and there were several instances of battles and shifts in control. Yeah, one being the Kinstrife, which we mentioned. Yeah. This is a civil war in Gondor, and uh, the descendants of the original Black Numenorians, called the Corsairs of Umbar, they launched attacks on the Gondorian coasts for ever and ever. Yeah, it was it was a 
constant beef. Yeah, after being defeated by King Eldakar, the sons of Castamir, the usurper, uh, they took over control of Umbar and united in hatred of Gondor with some of the Black Numenorians living there. Yeah. And the descendants of the usurpers launched attacks from there for centuries. It was just a forever. Yeah. I actually remember the Corsars of Umbar um, from the Return of the King. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was, was this the last time that they had fought before then? Well, yeah, the last time that they had uh, clashed before that, before the War of the Ring, um, most recently, was uh, they were defeated by Gondor under the command of Thorngil, who is, guess who, our friend, Aragorn too. Aragorn in disguise. And he was in disguise, yeah. Some, some of the young Aragorn adventures. Yeah. Okay, so he's had more than one encounter w- with Aragorn. Or, yeah. Well, uh, the, yeah, Corsars of Umbar. Oh, yeah. And th- when they were in league with Sauron during the War of the Ring, they planned to send a fleet up to Anduin to help besiege Gondor. But what happened? Again, Aragorn. Again, Again, Aragorn, yeah. Yeah, in the Army of the Dead, dog. Uh, I suppose that's the bigger detail here. The Army of the Dead is really what... He didn't do it by himself. The Army of the Dead is really the scrubbing bubbles that just kind of like pours over the land. Scrubbing bubbles. Yeah, the scrubbing (laughs) bubbles. I love that. I call upon the oath of scrubbing bubbles. I don't, I don't, every time I saw them in the movie, like when they came off the ships and they like poured over the field of... It does look like it a looks scrubbing like a, bubbles yeah, commercial. Scrub, scrub bubbles. Yeah, I, like I a dish know. soap commercial. You're right. Yeah, like when, when CGI used to be like kind of weird back yeah, in the early yeah, 2000s. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I see that. I think we should dive into another Trev check though. Yeah, I've got some questions okay. uh, about the Black Numenorians here. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I didn't really know uh, about them prior. Yeah. So uh, where where is Umbar located compared to Gondor if they were fighting all the time? Well, it's uh, it's south of the mouth of Anduin. So uh, Pelar- Pelargir is, uh, is at the mouth of the Anduin. And just south down along the coast um, a ways is Umbar. Uh, yeah, so uh, it's just kind of like southwest yeah. of Gondor, essentially. So it's a port city, yeah. probably? Port city, yeah. I would think of it as like a Singapore up for trade? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's mm-hmm. why it was uh, it was there uh, in yeah. That's why they f- uh, you know put it there in the first yeah, place. Very yeah, very much so. Yeah. yeah, and I remember earlier we were talking about uh, Numenorians and just their colonization. That uh, Umbar was one of the places the Kingsmen first went, right? Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. It was definitely their biggest uh, settlement. Yeah. Uh, d- does anyone other than Gondor cause trouble for these guys? Not really. No, they're actually pretty cool with the Haradrim around the area. Yeah, they're friendly with the Easterlings over there. Yeah. I guess they'd be Southrons, right? Oh, Southrons. Yeah, Yeah. Okay, so, all right. Then, I mean, one person they definitely had beef with seems to be Aragorn. But (laughs) why why do you think that is? It's it's actually 100% personal, yes. (laughs) Um, Personal, okay. Because these are descendants of the the Kinstrife rebels, Castamir the Usurper, right? From the Kinstrife. You remember mm. those? We just talked about them. Okay. So, so, he's so they were Dunedain. They're Dunedain. So that yeah. means... And they're Dunedain princes. Right. So they're... So they're fucking related, dog. They're family. They're fucking family. Yeah. They're pissed off. Yeah. Enough about the uh, all them Numenorians for now. Let's get into <laughs> some more middlemen. Let's let's check in with our friends, the Northmen of Ravanian. Yeah. So the Northmen of Ravanian during the Third Age. So the great group of middle... The greatest group of... Middlemen in Middle-earth was most likely the Northmen of Ravanian, and they were a confederation of men living mostly in the plains of Ravanian. Yeah, and they were descendants of that greater group of the Northern Adain that we'll, you'll remember from the last episode, which uh, makes them closely related to the House of Hador. Yeah, House of Hador. So the Northmen became great friends and allies of the Numenorian exiles that founded Gondor. Uh, we have a quick excerpt here from the Unfinished Tales by Danny. They were, in fact, a bulwark of Gondor, 
keeping its northern and eastern frontiers from invasion, though it was not fully realized by the kings until the bulwark was weakened and destroyed. Yeah, they definitely helped to defend the region. So the men of Gondor and the Northmen mingled quite a bit in the early part of the Third Age, and they often intermarried. Yeah, and this this was uh, eventually what led to the kin strife in Gondor, and we have to talk mm-hmm. about, because it does involve the Northmen. You're, you're saying... Specifically here, that because they mingled together, yes. they ended up fighting each other? Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, it's geez. because you've got some people who are a little more racist and be like, you've got mixed blood. You're, yeah, they look, at, they, look lesser. Down, they look down their noses at the middlemen. Yeah, essentially. Well, only men would do this. Of course they would. Well, I mean, the elves, are just, <laughs> the elves are just as racist. Oh, no, you're like, right. Yeah, no, the elves, yeah. the elves are just as racist. Yeah, don't, yeah, like, don't sell them short. <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough. Yeah, they did have more than one kinslaying. So the kinstrife in brief, uh, in the year uh, 1432, Eldakar ascended to the throne, and some of the people in Gondor the Dun- among the Dunedain were very, very pissed off. And why were they pissed off? Well, Eldakar's mother was of the Northmen. They didn't yeah. like that. Racist people don't like that and openly rebelled to take the throne, and this was led by Eldakar's cousin, Castamir. Yeah, they actually get, uh, they, they kick El- Eldakar out of Gondor. And he goes up north to the Northmen and gathers a bunch of them, comes back down, and it defeats them, uh, and they were eventually victorious. Yeah. Defeating racism in Middle-earth forever. 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 Yeah. Wow. That's right. It never is a problem ever, ever again. Everyone's friends forever. Yay. Yay. As we know, the story of the Lord of the Rings ends right here before it begins. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yep. <laughs> So, yeah, this actually, uh, uh, this kinstrife depopulates the shit out of Gondor because you're killing Dunedain on Dunedain, right? They're literally slaying each other mm-hmm. in battle. So many of them were killed off. The strength of the Dunedain blood is, is weakened. And the men of the, a shitload of men of the north migrate into Gondor and uh, they further mingle with the Numenorians, and uh, they kind of become a new um, society a little bit. Okay. Yeah, it's a, a just cultural diffusion that happens with them. So the confederation of the Northmen Rovanian was eventually utterly destroyed by a combination of the plague and war with Easterling tribes. Yeah, the people, they survived these conflicts in small pockets throughout the region, giving rise to some different groups of men that we run to into in the third uh, the latter part of the third age yeah for example the men of dale yeah men of dale uh this is a the city of dale this was situated at the foot of erebor yeah this is from the hobbit story if you'll remember over by the lonely mountain of course and in the year 2590 the uh thror establishes the kingdom of erebor over there and many northmen settled at the foot of the lonely mountain in a city that they ended up calling dale and essentially, these men, they were fleeing from war in Gondor and Rovanion. They mm-hmm. were just looking for somewhere else they could get away from all that shit. Yeah. Is this that same city that's like, uh, you know, right outside the Mountain in the Hobbit movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The yep, one yep. that gets destroyed. That's, that's Dale. Okay. Yeah. We're yeah. about to talk about that right right here. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Dale was destroyed along with the Kingdom of Erebor by the Dragon Smog. In 2770 of the Third Age. There okay. You, there you All go, right. Trev. I'm piecing that together now. There you there go. There you go. Uh, many of the w- refugees went on to uh, dwell in a place called Lake Town, which is uh, uh, w- uh, with the uh, Lake Men, who are another group of Northmen. Mm-hmm. Um, and they together they find they found Lake Town uh, with the descendants of Gurion, the Lord of Dale. 
Yeah, so we got a little more intermingling. We got the Dale men intermingling with the Lake men. Yeah, Bard the Bowman who slew uh, Smog the Dragon is a descendant of Girion, the Lord of Dale. Oh, very cool. I didn't know that. I feel yeah, like, yeah. like Girion kind of sounds kind of dwarfish. Kind of does. Um, it might very well be because they had a great relationship with the dwarves. Mm-hmm. Mm. Very friendly. That's really cool. Yeah. So let's talk about the men of the Wilderlands for a little bit here. So there were a pocket of Northmen that lived in the Wilderlands in the later part of the Third Age. Yeah, there were woodmen of Mirkwood, which we don't hear all that about, uh, much about other than that they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the men of Lake Town, which is also known as Eskaroth. Um, it is unknown when Lake Town was built. But it's known when it was destroyed. <laughs> but yes, it is. Uh, yeah, it was destroyed by Smog in uh, 2941. Yeah, Bard the Bowman, like uh, Danny mentioned, heir of Girion, was the slayer of the dragon. And he was eventually crowned King of Dale. The New Dale. The New Dale. The New Dale. Yeah. I like and it. And then uh, Dale and Lake Town were both rebuilt and were once again prosperous and had a great neighborly relationship. Take that, Smaug. And they didn't have any other violence to deal with, right, Joel? Never again. Never again. There was never a huge battle there during the War of the Ring, right? No. Never. No, never. Never. Okay, let's get into uh, the most famous descendants of the Northmen. Mm-hmm. The Aothade. The Aothade. We won't spend much time on them because we, we, spent we covered a, the shit out yeah, of these we guys. kind of spent a whole season on them but yeah so the aothe they're one of the pockets of the northmen to survive and they were great horsemen that dwelt in the northern vales of the anduin and they were great allies of gondor in their struggle against the easterling tribes yeah if you remember that um if you check out that lesser known battles uh rohan edition we talk yes. we talk all about those struggles and during the time of uh errol the errol the young the Aothade rode to the aid of Gondor in their struggle against the Balkoth. We all remember the Field of Celebrant, right? The uh, the glorious victory. Yeah, and this is when they go from being the Aothade into the Rohirrim. Right, right. Ooh, a transition. That's right, because yeah. after they helped them out, they were gifted some land. and the people renewed. Errol swore an oath to Kyrion, the current steward of Gondor, to always be allies to each other. And uh, in return, they were uh, gifted the land of Kalinarden to dwell in, which was pretty empty at this point because everyone had died from a plague. <laughs> yep. And the, the Aothade uh, moved out of the north, most of them at least. I'm, I'm sure some of them stayed behind. Probably. Um, but they formed the kingdom of Rohan. And that's where we get the Rohirrim. Yeah, yeah. And to hear all about that, check out our whole six-ass episodes on the Rohirrim. Check it out. It was but, actually, we were really proud of that. We At first we were like, man, are we running so low on content that we're going to have to talk about the Rohirrim? Yeah. And then we started getting into it and we we're like, oh, this shit's No, there's way a lot of shit. Awesome. Yeah. A lot it's of Rohirrim really stuff. cool. There's a lot of it's Rohirrim It's really stuff, cool. Yeah. yeah, War of the Rohirrim anime coming up. Coming about, up. About I've, that shit, dog. I've been hearing Ooh, good things. I've been that, hearing yeah. good things. I've been hearing it good things, too. It does sound good. And it, maybe it'll be, uh, they can make it a little better with the whole animation thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can take more liberties. It'll be way I'm excited to see how they, awesome. how they handle that, I think it's going to be a cool medium. Well, yeah. who uh, in the War of the Rohirrim, who will they be fighting, Joel? Oh, speak of the devil. In the War of the Rohirrim, they're going to be fighting the Dunlending. So let's talk about them for a minute here. That's on topic. Yeah, there we go. They're also called the Guathurium. That's Say a word. Three times fast. Wow. Guathurium, Guathurium, Guathurium. Fuck you. Good that job. was actually really good. Yeah. Damn, I can't <laughs> believe I did that. 
A group of so these are a group of pre-Numenorean uh, middlemen that lived in Dunlin near the borders of Rohan. Yeah, these men were constantly at war with Rohan and saw both the Rohirrim and Numenorians as essentially invaders and usurpers of their land. They they did live there first. They did live they, there first. They kind and of they, are the native folks at this I, point. I am a Dunlinding sympathizer. I think the Rohirrim could have treated them a lot better, and they could have lived in peace and shared the land. Mm-hmm. And uh, they tried to do that for a while, remember? If mm-hmm. you remember from those Rohan episodes. Um, but yeah, the Dunderlings are descendants of the Haladin that originally moved south out of Hildorian in the First Age. Yeah, so they weren't even like Morgoth worshippers or anything. They were part of the Adain. Yeah. Yeah, no, they, they sided with Saruman that one time, but th- that was just to get their land back, at, right. le- at least in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Dang, they do kind of sound shafted. Yeah, they're yeah they're colonized people. They they really get shafted. They uh. also had their own language. They spoke uh, Dunlandish, as it is called, which is uh, a descendant of the original language of the Haladin. Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, but yeah, again, to hear more about the War of the Rohirrim stuff, check out, uh, in the Third Age, check out our Rohirrim series, six episodes all Rohirrim all the time. Let's go back. Uh, let's go back east. How about it, guys? Easterlings? Yeah. Easterling time. Yeah, let's get into these Easterlings, what they were up to in the Third Age. So all of the Easterling tribes we hear of in the Third Age are seemingly evil. I kind of assumed that all Easterlings are evil just based off of that knowledge. Well, remember right. we learned in the last... Yeah, and I, yeah, yeah. I now know. Yeah, now you better, know. But, uh, now you but know. yeah, well, from the main mi- mainstream media stuff, Easterlings all just seem bad. Yeah. The more you know, NBC, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not apparent if some of these were in league with Sauron, but they were essentially trying to invade the west of Middle-earth for whatever reason anyway, so they were just seen as enemies. Yeah, and many of these invasions may have been spurred on by the Great Plague, which devastated the east. Yeah, there, it's not like there was no reason for it. They, no, yeah, they, it could, or it could have just been an, the age-old story of fighting over land and resources, you know? Mm-hmm. Usual, yeah. The usual. So Easterlings, they were at war with Gondor and its allies for the better part of... Oh, 300 years of the Third Age. Not an insignificant amount of time. No. And this was known as the Wainrider slash Balkoth War. And it was devastating to Gondor and Rovanion. But it did solidify the alliance between Gondor and the groups of remaining Northmen. So you're saying that war brought them together? Yeah, dude. Yeah, the Eothade, um, who founded the Kingdom of Rohan, they became a strong ally and neighbor in, uh, in war. Yeah, the two fought for each other like back to back for almost four centuries. Yeah, just helping each other out back and forth for centuries. For centuries, bro. It's a long time to be allies for. Yeah. Uh, during the War of the Ring, the Easterlings uh, sided with Sauron, um, and uh, a shitload of men came out of the East to reinforce Mordor. No good. No good. Let's talk about some of those other folks that tend to do that, too. Yeah, some of those other folks that came to help reinforce Mordor, some of them were the Haradrim. Yeah. Men of the desert regions of Harad. Yeah, they are descendants of those men that awoke in Hildorian, but stayed in the east. Yeah, the men of Harad were friendly with the king's men and learned much from them. So they were not friends of our uh, our, our our people over our in Gondor, friends. our faithful. Yeah. Um, but later, the Numenorians would become straight up fucking murderous oppressors of the Haradrim. Haradrim were often sacrificed to Morgoth or sold into slavery. Jesus Christ. Wait, wait, are you saying the Numenorians did that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. dang. Okay. Yeah, yeah they, they got real evil real guys, quick. You guys used the word tyrants earlier, and I'm, oh, yeah. I'm seeing it. No, it says, I can't remember where this is, but remember, Joel, it says uh, that our Pharazon, other than Sauron, was the world's greatest tyrant of the second age. Yeah, I think when we, the, when we did the character profile, it's kind of yeah. what we said, right? Yep, yep. Like, even ChatGPT agreed. Yeah, that's yeah. true. ChatGPT <laughs> did he agree. He became the greatest tyrant the world had ever known. Yeah. 
Yeah, they were fucking monsters, man. Yeah, totally. Uh, but the Haradrim, they did uh, march on behalf of Sauron in the War of the Ring. Yeah, it's. I mean, I kind of understandable when you had Numenorians coming and fucking taking them for human sacrifices and shit. You're not going to be. But too that was fr- under the command of Sauron. That's what's really weird. They turn around and they serve Sauron. What the hell? That's brutal. That's yeah. Sauron is a tricky bastard. They love their oppressor, oh my man. God. Oh, that's yeah. true. Well, there are some among the Haradrim that didn't serve Sauron, surprisingly enough, and they are mostly hiding in the woods and mountains of the region there. Yeah, so there are some cool Haradrim out there. We just don't hear much about them. We just don't hear much about them. They're unfortunately just kind of on the run. Yeah, the next group of men we don't hear much about either. Um, They're they're the men of Khand. I actually didn't know about these men at all. Yeah, they're also called the Varyag. Yeah, so from the region of Khand, just southeast of Mordor, that's where these guys are from. And little is known about this mysterious group of people, but one thing we do know is that they were allied with Sauron during the War of the Ring. That's kind of how we know about them. Yeah, they were part of the double-fucked Gondor situation, if you remember right. Yeah, when the men of the East and South allied against Gondor and kind of came at them. Yeah, yeah, they kind of hammer and anviled them. Mm-hmm. Weird, so racist men that kind of only exists in the story to be materials of war. Yeah, yep. in a sense. Yep. Pretty yeah. much. I mean, it mentions that, like, some of these men resisted, but, like, there's no real... You know, we don't get to see much of it. Yeah. Right. It's just kind of vaguely mentioned. Yeah. So let's get away from uh, some of these more strange groups and get into the coolest one. Hell yeah. This is this is probably our favorite, right? Yeah, dude. I, I think if I learned anything from these men episodes is that the Druidane are dope as fuck, right? Yeah. Secret heroes of secret, the Middle Earth? Yeah, secret heroes of Middle Earth. Hell yeah, they are. So, yes, the Druidane during the Third Age. So by the Third Age, the Druidane of Middle-Earth had dwindled to a a relatively small population, mostly centered in the Druidan forest. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that secret hero of the War of the Ring. Mm. Han Burihan! Han Burihan! Love that guy. Love him. Love him, love him. He was the leader of the Druidan of the Druidan forest uh, during the War of the Ring. Yeah, he provided some invaluable help to the Rohirrim uh, when they were riding to the aid of Minas Tirith. Uh, essentially, Hanbury Han showed them an abandoned road through the mountains called the Stonewayne Valley, and this allowed the Rohirrim to get to Minas Tirith faster and avoid an ambush that was set up for them on the way. But this was only under the condition that, essentially, they leave the Druidane the fuck alone from here on out because up until this point weren't they still actively hunting the druidane like they said uh, hanbury Han said they hunt them like beasts yeah yeah Yeah. it's fucking shitty yeah aragorn gave them the druidon forest as a gift after the war of the ring Mm. there's a really cool part where he shouts to them like i'm the heir of isildur and this is forever your realm or whatever yeah he's essentially like shouting at what seemingly is just a dark forest dark forest and then you hear the drums and the in answer that's really awesome I mean, yeah. they and they had been there since part of the uh, since they left um, Eldorian. Eldorian, yeah, yeah. And, and they they went across the sea back, and they were just chilling in that forest for a long time, right? Yeah, and like all like probably all of the Third Age. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, once they got back from Numenor, they were almost completely confined to uh, parts of southern Gondor and the Druidan Forest. Hmm. Hell yeah! But we we love our Druidane. Yeah, we but, do. But uh, let's talk about some other men. These these are some men that I've always kind of liked. Yeah, the, these these guys are cool. The people of Bree. Yeah. Also called Bree lenders. They're all, they're, I, I almost don't even want to say men because they're all just all kinds of people in Bree. But oh, yeah. I guess we are specifically talking about We're men talking today. about the Bree lander men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The natives. 
We're talking about men today. <laughs> yeah, so these are the men of Northern Eriador, so, uh, centered around Bree Hill. Yeah, according to Bree Landers, Bree was founded back in the Elder Days, and their ancestors came from the valleys of the White Mountains and the Misty Mountains near the Gap of Rohan uh, back in the Elder Days. Yeah, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, after studying these men for so long, the, uh, this most likely makes them Halidan. Likely, yeah. I, yeah. I would trust your assessment on that. <laughs> yeah, and those were members of the southern, of the original southern group of Atani that left Hildorian in the first age. But also, in my research, I learned that these could be partially descended from the House of Boar. The Easterling? The Easterling, yeah. The good ah. Easterling from uh, the first age, remember? Um, it says in the Silmarillion that they fled into northern Eriador after the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. Okay. Yeah. So they could be. Uh, they could have mingled with the other middlemen there. Like, I could see it. Yeah. And, and maybe that's where the Brelanders come from. You never know. Very cool. Very cool. I love some of this. A little bit of Tolkieniery. Yeah. Um, but Bree's the economic and cultural hub of Northern Eriador for sure. Yeah. It was the center of trade, being right there on the Great East Road, and it was frequented by the dwarves traveling to their mines in the Blue Mountains. So there was a lot of good traffic through there. How big do you think it was, Bree? Yeah, Bree. It was a pretty big settlement. It's like, yeah, it's on a big hill. It's on a like, big old hill. It's like there's like a fence around it, mm-hmm. and it's like on a hill. Oh, okay. Yeah, I like, think there's multiple hills, maybe, if I remember right. It's a pretty big place, from what I remember. Yeah. Well, stating here that it's an economic hub, I, I kind of assumed it'd have to be like pretty sizable. I mean, they're big enough to have an inn too. I mean, we know that from the oh yeah the movies and the book and the Lord of the Rings. So yeah. And there was actually three distinct types of peoples living in Bree at the uh, in the Third Age during the Lord of the Rings. Uh, who do we got, Joel? So we had the the middlemen of Bree, as we know. We've been kind of talking about them. Yeah. Now we've got the Dunedain Rangers, who we also talked about, and then we've also got, of course, the Hobbits of Bree. Hobbits, who are uh, technically of the race of men, so maybe we'll be talking about them in like two minutes here. Maybe uh, no. perhaps you never know. <laughs> In the Third Age, the Inn of the Prancing Pony was an important place. Yeah, the Prancing Pony was an inn that was built by the Butterbur family sometime in the Third Age. And it was an important place for hobbits, men, and dwarves, pretty much anyone going through Bree. Yeah, you had to be at the Prancing Pony. Anyone who was anybody been to the Prancing Pony. That's where Tobald Hornblower first heard about pipeweed. There you go. Yeah, I learned that the other day. Pretty fucking cool. Dang. Also, a whole lot of stuff converges at the the Prancing Pony. Oh, yeah. That's where mm-hmm. Thorin and uh, Gandalf uh, planned their quest to Erebor. Yeah. That's, that's where they meet for the first time. Yeah. That's where Frodo finally meets Aragorn for the first time. Mm-hmm. Right? Strider. A lot yeah. of cool shit. Yeah. Butterbur is the one that holds on to Gandalf's letter. Yeah. Very important pl- things happen at the, the Prancing Pony. Well, being that uh, that Bree itself was in Northern Eriador, wouldn't that kind of be in the jurisdiction of the North Kingdom? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, 100%. Um, uh, when Elendo formed Arnor, uh, Bree was incorporated into it in 3320 of the Second Age. Ah, part of a bigger kingdom. Okay. Yeah, yeah the, they uh, they uh, bend the knee to the king of uh, Arnor. Being that so many people like frequent Bree or live in Bree, like different types of you know, men and, and dwarves, etc., um, did they originally have their own like native language or anything? They did. They had an unknown Manish language, but uh, they adopted Westron after the Numenorians showed up again. Okay, so better better means to communicate, I assume. Yeah, um, but if I had to guess, um, their original Manish language was probably a variation of the Haladin language, or like I said, could be an unknown Easterling language mm. brought over by the House of Boar. That'd be pretty cool. But I'll, all right, guys, this is your reward for listening to uh, all of our stuff about men. Who is the last offshoot of the race of men? 
Yeah, so the last group we're going to talk about today is going to be hobbits, surprisingly enough. Because hobbits are actually considered relatives of men. Yeah, the younger children of Ilavatar, they call them. According to the Lord of the Rings, the hobbits lost the genealogical details of of, uh, how they are related to the race of men. Yeah, this implies that the hobbits have the gift of men and do pass beyond Arda, for all we know. Yeah, we do know that hobbits live longer than men. Around uh, 100 to 130 years is is, is a, a good span. Uh, hobbits were accepted as an adult at the age of 33 versus 21 for most men. And then I think we said was 25, 25 for, for Numenorians. The Numenorians. Yeah. And the oldest known hobbits were the old Took, who died at 130 years. And then there was good old Bilbo Baggins, who outlived the old Took at by one year, 131. Well, that's just when he left, too, right? Because uh, isn't that when... Uh, I suppose, yeah, because he Yeah, because we don't sails. know when he died, really. He sails yeah. over so to he, Valinor. He beat him at least by one year. Well, and we I think we've talked about it before. The people like who have the gift of men of Valinor probably tend to live uh, quite a bit longer, too, right? Um, just because of healthcare, essentially. <laughs> healthcare. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> healthcare got, in Valinor is out of this world. They got that magic healthcare yeah. there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the most distinguishing feature of hobbits is their short stature. They're smaller than dwarves, usually between two and four feet tall, and over time, hobbits became even shorter than that. Yeah, hobbits have furry feet with leathery soles, and they generally don't need shoes or boots. Yeah, well, as we know, they have uh, slightly pointed ears. Yes, which leads us to a, a goof-em-up from, yeah, la- from uh, last week. A little correction from our, our episode, or just our last episode, 82, where we were still talking about men. So I had asserted that neither elves nor hobbits had pointed ears, that that was just a thing of European folklore. A misconception. So strangely enough, there is no real evi- hard evidence that Tolkien meant his elves to have pointed ears. Yeah, Tolkien, he, goes, he describes the physical differences between elves and men on several occasions, but there is never any mention of them being differentiated by their ears. Wait, really? Yes. Wouldn't that be the most obvious thing you'd list? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, uh, the um, European pointy-eared elf was so part of the culture that we've just always accepted it as part of Tolkien as well. But he didn't necessarily mean for that to be so. Um, however, 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 there is hard evidence, my friends, to support that hobbits did have slightly pointed ears. Yeah, who would have thunk it? Who would have thunk it? And uh, I dug up this letter. Um, from J.R.R. Tolkien to Houghton Mifflin um, in 1938. This was to describe Bilbo for an illustration that they were doing, an illustrated version of The Hobbit they were doing. And Joel's going to read that letter for us, part of that letter. I picture a fairly human figure, not a kind of fairy rabbit, as some of my British reviewers seem to fancy. Fattish in the stomach, shortish in the leg. A round, jovial face, ears only slightly pointed and quote-unquote elvish. Hair, short and curling, brown. Uh, The feet, from the ankles down, covered with brown, hairy fur. Clothing, green velvet breeches, red or yellow waistcoat, brown or green jacket, gold or brass buttons, a dark green hood and cloak, belonging to a dwarf. And we got a note here that Tolkien uses the words elvish in quotes. Because at this time, this is 1938, guys. Mm-hmm. So at this time, Tolkien's elves were unknown to most people. If Unless you had uh, just read 
The Hobbit or got an early version because it came out in 1937. Mm-hmm. So like, unless you had like just fucking read that book, you didn't know that Tolkien had his his idea of elves. But you, he was using the quotes to refer to elves of European art, which are almost always depicted with pointy ears. Can I point out that that description also kind of makes me think of a of a leprechaun? Because in it, a way, he, yeah. he just because he just yeah. he describes him like you know with the, with the pointy ears, short, but also wearing a lot of green and, and the gold waistcoat. gold buttons and stuff. When you yeah. say when you say leprechaun, I just think of Warwick Davis as the leprechaun for <laughs> leprechaun films. <laughs> Give me back my gold. <laughs> oh my gosh. A horror movie with Bilbo Baggins as the, yeah. as the murderer. We watched uh, Leprechaun on uh, on uh, St. Paddy's Day last year. Fun time. So hobbits were skilled listeners and had particularly good high eyesight. And they were nimble and dexterous in their movements. Although they were inclined to be fat and did not hurry unnecessarily. Right. I love that. Don't do it unless you have to. The hobbits who live in the Shire, they dressed in bright colors and were fond of yellow and green. And we've got an excerpt from the Fellowship of the Ring prologue, uh, read by Trevor. They dressed in bright colors, being notably fond of yellow and green. But they seldom wore shoes, since their feet had tough, leathery soles and were clad in a thick, curling hair, much like the hair of their heads, which was commonly brown. Their faces were, as a rule, good-natured rather than beautiful broad, bright-eyed, red-cheeked, with mouths apt to laughter, and to eating and drinking. And laugh they did, and eat, and drink, often and heartily, being fond of simple jests at all times. You sound like fun, folks. Sound like it. Um, Hobbits, they spoke the common speech, which is Westron. Uh, most hobbits were friendly and go lucky as a ru- and happy-go-lucky as a rule. Yeah, they were also very fond of farming, socializing, and just generally talking about genealogies. Yeah, they love that. And the giving and receiving of presents. Seems kind of weird to me that they're so obsessed with genealogies, yet they can't remember where they split off. <laughs> I that. always thought that that was that is, very ironic, that too. That is ironic. Yeah. Uh, well, we've got a quick excerpt here from The Fellowship of the Ring, the prologue, read by Danny, talking about them. They do not understand or like machines more complicated than a forge bellows, a watermill, or a hand loom. Though they were skillful with tools, they are quick of hearing and sharp-eyed, and though they are inclined to be fat and do not hurry unnecessarily, they are nonetheless nimble and deft in their movements. They possessed from the first the art of disappearing swiftly and silently when large folk whom they do not wish to meet come blundering by. In this they have developed unto to men it may seem magical. Hell yeah. Now let's talk about another characteristic of hobbits that I'm sure everyone will be familiar with. Hobbits love food and drink. Yes. The hobbits enjoy six meals a day when they can get them, which is funnily enough, something we had to look up. Yeah, we had to fact check this. Because in the book, there are six. In the film, there are seven. In the film, there are seven. Yeah, we look at that and then we each were remembering a little bit differently. We weren't sure what was up and what was down. But it turns out in the book, yes, there are only six meals. Yeah, they add something called afternoon tea in the movie. That seems kind of a weird, like, specific thing to add. Maybe they yeah, just wanted to get the number to seven because it's lucky. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they had afternoon tea. I don't know if they'd call it a meal. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> well, let's go over the six that they did have. So we've got breakfast, second breakfast. Eleven Z's, luncheon. 
And of course, dinner and supper. Gotta have them both. They like simple food, such as bread, meat, potatoes, and cheeses. And hobbits were also known to have a particular fondness of cake and for loving mushrooms, prizing mushrooms above pretty much any other foods. Oh man, minus the mushrooms, I could be a hobbit. All of this sounds wonderful. I actually recently came to fucking love mushrooms. I love mushrooms. I don't know what Trevor's problem is. The texture I, thing, I didn't man. used to like them. It, well, part of it was texture and, and other things, but I don't know what it was. As, I, as I've gotten older now, I started trying them, and I absolutely love them. Trevor's tripping. Mushrooms are great. Aren't mushrooms supposed to be the thing that makes you trip? It's true. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. No, that's what's great about mushrooms. A third of them uh, make you trip. A third of them are delicious, and a third of them kill, kill you. you. Yeah. yeah. Yay. <laughs> um, they also developed a keen sense for brewing and drinking ales and beers. Mm-hmm. Drinking good. And they also loved the smoking of pipeweed and blowing smoke rings. And this was a practice first started by Tobold Hornblower of Longbottom in the South Farthing. Though generally timid, hobbits proved to have great courage, endurance, and resistance to evil straight up. Yeah, a couple good examples of this. Gollum, despite using the One Ring for years, he did not transform into a wraith under the ring's evil power. All the other Manish kings that got rings that right. happened. He, yeah. did, he did kind of go crazy, though. I mean, yeah, yeah he, he did. He didn't fall to oh, evil, sure. but he did fall to his own mind. Yeah, yeah in a yeah. sense. Yeah. No, he was not unscathed <laughs> by yeah. any means. But we also see Frodo's resilience to the ring, and uh, Bilbo, too. Bilbo had it for a long-ass time. He did, yeah. And then Sam... Sam did too. Sam gave it up mm-hmm. uh, uh, willingly. Sam willingly handed it away. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure even uh, even Isildur had some resistance to the ring's influence. Like, um, my theory is, yeah. Wasn't he was like willing to give up the ring to um, to Elrond, wasn't he? No, he specifically did not do that. He was specifically unwilling to do so. Oh. Um, he was going to bring it back to Arnor. I know that. Arnor. Was, it, yeah, yeah. was that it? Okay. Yeah, he was going to bring it back to Arnor. He was on his way there, and uh, they didn't set watch because they thought, hey, we just kicked Sauron's ass. Nothing's going to happen. Mm. And then they got descended on by, like, they were outnumbered, like, 100 to 1. By yep. orcs. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that's got to be what it is. I'm just misremembering yep. a little. Yeah, they call that the disaster of the Gladden Fields. Yeah. Um, during the long winter, Gandalf admired hobbits uh, and their, un- inc- their uncomplaining courage and pity for one another. Um, and thanks to that, they survived. And then also during the Wayne Rider days, or excuse me, during the wandering days of the Hobbits. Well, that'd be fucked if the Wayne Riders made oh it all God, the way. If the Ooh. Wayne, ri- if the Wayne oh, Riders. Oh, no. Those poor Hobbits. Those poor Hobbits would have been destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> no. So while the Hobbits were in their wandering days, they were able to easily adapt to the various environments they visited. And they also adopted customs and language of the people that they were in contact with at that time. Yes, of course. Yeah, they're they're pretty uh, they're pretty sociable and they're pretty good at uh, um, once they learn other people's cultures, they're pretty good about doing that stuff. And we have a uh, a, a letter from J.R.R. Tolkien again. This is letter one thirty one, um, which is on page one hundred and fifty eight of that book. If you have it, you should get it. If you don't, but this is read by Joel. Hobbits are entirely without non-human powers but are represented as being more in touch with nature, the soil and other living things, plants and animals, and, abnormally for humans, free from ambition or greed of wealth. They are made small partly to exhibit the pettiness of man, and mostly to show, in creatures of very small physical power, the amazing and unexpected heroism of ordinary men in a pinch. I really like that. Yeah. That's a, a cool letter. It's a it's a great sort of just explanation of 
of hobbits. Of, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, of hobbits and and just how like something so small can be so significant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, after settling in the Shire, hobbits they preferred a quiet and peaceful lifestyle instead of their wandering uh, years. Yeah, they became very ignorant of the happenings of the outside world, and they became very suspicious of other people from other places. Yeah, they always referred to people as outsiders. They're pretty xenophobic. Hobbit's calendar uh, in Shire Reckoning has 12 months, consisting of 30 days each. Pretty even and simple. I like it. This is the same as the Numenorean calendar. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Uh, the Hobbits of the Shire developed a custom of giving away gifts on their birthdays instead of receiving them, which I think is really cool. I love that, yeah. A good example is Bilbo's 11th, 111th birthday, where he was just like... Pearl's the biggest party fucking ever. He literally everyone gets a gift. Yeah. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry, everyone's kid gets a gift. It was great. Yeah, it was great. But for more about Hobbits, check out our uh, episode 36, which was all about Hobbits. Hell yeah. Dang, that's like more than half of our episodes ago. Yeah, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, dude. Um, so let's get into the final thoughts here. Some final thought sections. Yeah, so that's a, most of what we've got for you today on men. Uh, so men are probably the most widespread and diverse of the children of Ilavaz are, I think it's safe to say. Yeah. Yeah, I have a question. I mean, it's kind of a little off topic, but sure. but on topic. It seems like men evolve a, a bit or or a lot throughout the ages. You know, hobbits mm-hmm. coming to be. Yeah. So w- would genetic variation be like more of a problem for elves since they hardly reproduce? Like, would elves have? Are there any evolutions uh, spawned from elves? Um, I I would think so. Men seem to have much more variation. Uh, and if I had to guess, uh, that would probably be caused by more generations of reproduction. Yeah, I don't know that elves would probably have as much variation or, or diversity in general just because, yeah, just because of those long lives. Yeah, and they don't reproduce quickly or often. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, which would probably lead to <laughs> less variation if we applied the the principles of our science. Of our science. To middle yeah, I mean, I suppose it would make sense, too. Like, elves would probably have less need to evolve. I mean, they can't get sick, right? Yeah, they're right, already yeah, pretty great as it yeah. is. They're only slain, yeah. So, like, what would select them? You know what I mean? Just war? Yeah, there's 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 sort of um, they're kind of pinnacle, aren't they? Yeah. Um. So yeah, men. They also. It's interesting how they slowly grow to be the more dominant of the two kindreds. Yeah, they definitely do over the over the generations and over the over the ages. Really, that is kind of weird. You you kind of assume the ones that could live forever would outlast the ones who can't. You'd think, right? Mm-hmm. You'd yeah. think. Yeah, but the men, they're they're all over Middle Earth, literally yeah. everywhere. That was really wild to me um, when I was writing this. It's just how widespread men are. Yeah, mm-hmm. do do we even know of any like elves that go east? Some of the elves did stay over there. They're called the Avari. The Avari. Remember, okay. they were the first ones that the men ran into when they left Hidlorian. Remember? Yes. Okay. Because yeah. yeah. men or because elves also started in the east, so some stayed yep. there. Yep. It also seems like the vast majority of men kind of kind of were evil though. Yeah, they were turned evil straight away, a lot of them, which is uh, interesting. Unfortunate, yeah. No, they, they definitely were not made evil, um, and I wouldn't necessarily say they're predisposed to being evil, but they are kind of easily swayed. Yes, in they, can, they tend to be. Yeah, but they did have some definite advantages over the Eldar. Certainly. Um, like we said, they did become the dominant of the two by the end of the Third Age, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they're generally hardier. Um, they can, you know, take more punishment. Mm-hmm than elves can absolutely yeah it kind of seems like they have a much wider culture too there's just so many uh sunderings of men compared mm-hmm. to elves yes there's absolutely. much much more offshoots of men than there are elves that's for for damn sure and there are a lot of offshoots of elves <laughs> yes <laughs> there are <laughs> but yeah who do you guys think is cooler elves or men let's uh let's you know let's put it to a poll 
Yeah, let us know. Write a comment or, uh, you know, write us a message. Let us know who you like more, who you think is the cooler race, elves or men. Yeah. Can I give my personal opinion so everybody can side with me? Sure. I I would totally choose elves. Specifically. <laughs> kind of hard not to. Specifically because they get the choice to become men if they you know no only arendil's uh heirs have that. only half elven half men well okay then specifically i want that offshoot of elves so you want you want to be elrond is what yeah i want to i want to be able to like (laughs) when i'm done and sick of the world just go away (laughs) well yeah that's that's a very one line of people yeah 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 well that's pretty much everything we've got for you this week folks this wraps up our two-parter on the race of men yeah 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 it turned out to be two whole long ass episodes there was a lot to cover you you dug up a lot of stuff there's a whole lot in there i did not know beforehand i sure did gang well make sure to tune in next week for episode 84 where we will discuss a bunch of the first age references in the lord of the rings and the hobbit yeah very interesting very interesting uh episode i'm excited for it But yeah, thanks again for listening to KOT Podcast. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to stay up to date on new episodes. And if you could rate us and give us a review, that would be great. Big thank you to all of our patrons. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to Patreon to help support us. That'd be patreon.com forward slash KOT Podcast. Subscribing also gets you some exclusive content. And if you uh, if you can't help support us on Patreon, that's totally cool. Um, if you'd prefer kind of do a one-time thing, if you want to help us out, you can always hit us up. We can do PayPal or other services, uh, you know, whatever floats your boat. And We'll make uh, it happen, Kevin. We'll make it happen. We would appreciate it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Follow us on social media, the most important of which, in my opinion, is the Discord. Join the Discord. Link in description? A second that. Link in the description. Trevor uh, is active on the Discord. We're all very active on the Discord, Mm -hmm. so check it out. Yeah, and feel free to, you know, do an at at directly at us. You know, we've got some question pages. You can go there and and discuss some things with us. We'd love to do that. All kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, I love love it when people be posting in the Discord. I I freaking love it. Um, Also, check us out on TikTok at keep uh, keep underscore on underscore Tolkien underscore podcast. And uh, we are recently putting a lot more effort into our TikTok. Yeah, go check them out. They're fun. So check it out. They're fun, yeah. See what we got going on. And then, of course, uh, don't forget to check out Twitter. That's uh, our at KOT podcast for our Twitter. And then there's also Facebook, at official Keep on Tolkien. Check us out also on Instagram, at Keep on Tolkien Podcast. And lastly, don't forget to check out our merch store. Go there. Uh, we got a lot of really cool stuff on there. Uh, yes, we do. Know, stuff we've designed ourselves and we're really proud of. Pop yeah. Stuff. The website for that is keep-on-tolkien-podcast.tmail.com. Buy stuff. Buy things. (laughs) All right, but that's all we've got for you today. We love you guys. I'm Danny J. I'm Joel N. I'm Trevor D. We are Keep Keep on on Tolkien. Tolkien. All right, into...